I want to invite you this morning to turn back to the book of Hebrews. Uh, We continue our series on the book of Hebrews, looking this morning at chapter 13. We will probably be in chapter 13 for maybe three or four Sundays. And we're looking this morning at the first of those, and the message is entitled, The Gospel Impacting Relationships. The Gospel Impacting Relationships. Hebrews chapter 13. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read from verse 1 down through verse 6. The writer says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes and our ears to your word. That your Holy Spirit would speak to us. And bring about conviction and challenge, encouragement and transformation. Lord, may your will be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From the second or third century, we have one of the very first works that could be classified as an apologetic. An apologetic is a defense of the Christian faith. Giving a defense or giving reasons why you believe what you believe. And this is a letter that we have a manuscript from the 13th century of this letter available. It's called the Epistle of Mathetus to Diagnetus. And the excerpt I want to read from this little epistle is from the fifth chapter of it. And some of you will remember about three or four years ago, I read portions of this letter to you. Listen again to it. It says, and I quote here, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in whether Greek or otherwise. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. 
They play their full role as citizens but labor under all of the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland but for them their homeland wherever it may be is is a foreign country. Like others they marry and have children but they do not kill them. They share their meals but they do not share their wives and their beds. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but live as citizens of heaven. They are obedient to the laws of the land, and yet they live on a level that transcends those laws. Christians love all men. But all men seem to despise them and persecute them. They are condemned because they are not understood. They are put to death, but they are raised to life again. They live in poverty, but they enrich many. They are totally destitute, but they possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of evildoers, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by Jews and others as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks and Romans. And yet no one can seem to give an explanation of why they hate this group known as Christians. Powerful letter. Now folks, as I have mentioned repeatedly to you, the book of Hebrews, the context of the book of Hebrews is a context of suffering. These were Jews who have come to faith in Christ. And because they've come to faith in Christ, some of them have lost their families. Their families will not even speak to them anymore. They're shunned in the community. Some of them have lost their jobs and their businesses. People will not trade with them anymore when they find out that they are Christians. And because of this, some of them are desiring to go back to their old way of life. They want to go back to being Jews again. And they want to return once again to the temple and the temple sacrifices and temple liturgy. Because things were so easy then. Nobody was persecuting them. Nobody was opposing them. Life was comfortable. And so they want to go back. But the writer of Hebrews is telling them over and over again, you can't go back. You must persevere in following Jesus Christ. Now chapter 13 wraps up this letter. Obviously a letter that is very rich in theology. Other than the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is probably the most theological letter that we have. And the book of Hebrews is very much like letters or epistles of the Apostle Paul. 
Because the Apostle Paul would spend most of his letter writing about theology and then at the end of the letter he would talk about practice. Practice of that theology which is known as Christian ethics. Ethics always follows Doctrine. That's why if you have the ESV study Bible, in the back of the ESV study Bible, there's a wonderful section on Christian doctrine or theology. And then the very next section will be a section on Christian ethics. Because ethics follows theology. Conduct grows out of what we believe. Some people say today it doesn't matter what you believe, but it does matter what you believe. And what you truly believe will come out in your conduct. And so Hebrews chapter 13, he's talking about conduct. Now, as you read chapter 13 in its entirety, which I want to encourage you to do this afternoon, it might seem to you that he's just giving a laundry list of all kinds of different subjects. It's like he's trying to hurry up and close this letter. And so he's just kind of dumping everything in. But that's not what he's doing at all. He's talking about the different relationships we have. And how the gospel impacts all of those relationships in its own way. When it comes to our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the church, we're to love one another. The gospel should impact how we love one another. It should impact how we visit those, how we minister to those who are in prison or hospitals or nursing homes, those who are shut-ins, whatever institution people might find themselves locked away in and they're having a tough time. The gospel ought to determine how we reach out to them. The gospel should impact marriage. It should impact what we do with our money. And it should impact the relationship that clergy and laity have together in the church. He addresses all of these issues here in chapter 13. I think if we were looking for a summary statement of chapter 13, the best summary statement might be Paul's Uh, words to the Ephesians. Ephesians 4 verse 1 he says therefore brethren as prisoners of the Lord let us live lives that are worthy of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews whoever he is is essentially saying the same thing. Let us live lives that are worthy of the gospel. First thing I want you to notice with me. He points out our relationship to one another. Look at verse 1. He says, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Now, I mentioned a moment ago how perseverance is the major theme of the letter. Well, perseverance describes also how we are to love one another. We are to continue in it. Circumstances can sometimes happen that seem to dampen love or threaten love in a Christian body. And he's saying here we are not to let that happen. The philosopher Bertrand Russell once wrote in an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. 
He said it was not so much Christ that kept him from being a believer, but it was the conduct of those who claim that they follow Christ. He said those who profess with their lips that they follow Jesus Christ and then they hate one another and they abuse one another. He said basically, you know, it's bad enough for someone like me to be wicked. He said, but I don't profess to be a follower of Christ. But when professing Christians do not live up to Christ's standards for his followers, that is wickedness in its most extreme form. And then he went on to give a number of examples of how Christians have done things that don't match up with what they say they believe. He gave the example of some of the early Spaniards when they invaded Mexico and Peru how they would take the babies of the people they conquered and they would baptize those infants believing that they were baptizing original sin out of those infants so if the when the infants died they would be guaranteed a spot in heaven so they would baptize the infants and then they would take the legs or the arms of those infants and they would dash them against the rocks and Cause their brains to come out, literally. He gave many such examples like that that went on to argue why he was not a Christian. Again, it had nothing to do with Christ, but the followers of Christ. The writer of Hebrews is saying, we've got to love one another. Our conduct has got to be conduct like the Lord that we say that we follow. And we've got to persevere in that love even when circumstances may seem to make love difficult. Now by saying brotherly love, what is he saying? He is saying that we are family. When you come to Christ, You are adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus and you have brothers and sisters in Christ and we call upon one father. We're we're family. Harold Atridge in his commentary on the book of Hebrews says the phrase brotherly love was almost unheard of in the ancient world outside of Christian circles. You might read of love, but you would not read of brotherly love. Again, except in Christian circles. Brotherly love is something that is distinctly love among Christians. Dr. John MacArthur writes of this verse, brotherly love is important for at least three primary reasons. First of all, it reveals to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. Secondly, it reveals our true identity to ourselves. And thirdly, it delights God. And then he breaks down each one of these reasons with scriptural justification. He said, first, it reveals to the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. And he quotes Jesus in John 13, 35, where Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Secondly, MacArthur writes, loving fellow Christians also reveals our true identity. It gives added assurance to us of our spiritual life in Christ. And, and he quotes 1 John three fourteen, where John says, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. 
And then thirdly, he said, brotherly love among Christians delights God. And he quotes Psalm 133.1 where the psalmist says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I suppose with the difficulties that the Hebrews were facing, it was becoming easier and easier for them to turn on one another. And he's saying, don't do that. You know, folks, if love were easy, I suppose there would be no reason whatsoever for a verse in the Bible like verse 1. Because if love were easy, it would come naturally. There would be no reason for God to give instruction on it because we would do it anyway. But sometimes because we don't do it, we find a command like this. That's why I, along with the rest of the staff, have encouraged you from time to time that if you have a problem with a fellow believer, follow the pattern that Jesus laid down in Matthew 18 and go directly to that person. Don't involve other people. Go directly to that person. And if somebody ever comes to you and has a complaint against somebody... Stop them and say, you know what? I'm not going to be a sponge to take part in that. You've got to go directly to that person. I'm not going to sin and enter into gossip with you about this. We've got to remember that James said in the book of James, with the tongue we praise God on the one hand, and then we turn right around and we curse our brothers and sisters who are made in the very image of God. James says this should not be so. There ought to be consistency in our language. You know, as a pastor, I learned a long time ago that when somebody comes to you with the complaint about somebody, there's almost always another side to the story. And the only way you're going to resolve it is get the parties to sit down together. And something I've also learned, if somebody will gossip to you about somebody else, guess what? They will then turn around and gossip about you to to somebody else, right? Because again, it's a character issue that they have. Or should I say, a lack of character. He says that we are to let brotherly love continue. We are to persevere in it. And then beginning in verse 2, he shows how love continues to impact us even beyond our individual church group. He talks in verse 2 about our relationship to strangers. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Christians are to show hospitality. Now, in the New Testament world, hotels tended to be few and far between. And folks, in the ancient world, hotels were not nice places. They were essentially brothels. And they could be dangerous places. 
And so when the early Christians would travel from city to city doing their missionary work and spreading the gospel, they needed to stay in one another's homes. It was a lot more than simply having somebody over for dinner. They would open their doors to missionaries and itinerant preachers who might stay with them for a couple of days before they moved on to another city spreading the gospel. And so early Christians were told to make certain that they were opening their homes, extending hospitality to these folks. It would be an important element In spreading the gospel. Folks, hospitality is one of those gifts today whereby even unbelievers can be befriended and come into the fellowship of of your home for friendship and eventually you can build a bridge to the gospel. What I'm saying is our reason today, in America at least, for showing hospitality is is a different circumstance from this. But it's still a gift today that God can use for the spread of the gospel. I want to give you an example of that. Right up the road in Durham, North Carolina, there's a nationally known pastor's wife by the name of Rosario Butterfield. Some of you probably heard of her. Her husband pastors a Reformed Presbyterian church in Durham. Now early on in Rosario's adult life when she was a single lady, she's a brilliant lady, she was a a professor of English and literature at Syracuse University in New York. But she was also a practicing lesbian. It was largely through the hospitality of a local Presbyterian pastor and his wife that Rosario came to faith in Christ and she turned away from same-sex relationships. She's now one of the most sought-after persons in the nation about how the church can reach the same-sex community. But again, she talks about this pastor and his wife and the hospitality that they showed to her and how patient they were with her. When she would come into their home for coffee and dessert or a meal, she would hammer them with questions. And they were so patient with her. And she would go to their home time and time again and talk to them and talk to them, talk to them more. And finally, they were able to lead her to faith in Christ. And she says it was their hospitality to her that built the bridge for the sake of the gospel. So it may not be necessary for us today to practice hospitality to keep fellow Christians from having to stay in hotels. Fortunately, hotels today are pretty nice. But nonetheless, hospitality can still be used in the church today to help spread the good news of Jesus Christ. He's commanding them to open their doors to show hospitality. And then he adds a little interesting phrase to showing hospitality. What's he say some of them have ended up doing? Entertaining angels unawares. 
Dr. Billy Graham once wrote a book entitled Angels, God's Secret Agents. We have two copies of it in our church library here. In that book, he tells the story of Dr. S.W. Mitchell, a celebrated Philadelphia neurologist who had gone to bed after an exceptionally tiring day. Suddenly, he was awakened by someone tenaciously knocking at his door. Well, he went to the door, opened it, and there stood a little girl who was deeply upset. She told him that her mother was very sick and asked him if he would please come immediately and help her. It was a cold, bitter, bitterly cold, snowy night. He was bone tired, but Dr. Mitchell said that he dressed and followed the little girl. And as the Reader's Digest and the Guidepost magazine reports the story, he found the little girl's mother desperately ill with a very severe case of pneumonia. After arranging for medical care, he complimented the sick woman on the intelligence and persistence of her little daughter. And the woman looked at him strangely and then said, Sir, my daughter died a month ago. And he explained what the little girl had on. And she said, Go to my my closet over there. And he opened the closet. And there was the outfit the little girl had on. And the outfit was warm and dry. It was very apparent that outfit had not been worn out in the snow that night. Angels unaware? Billy Graham talks about a missionary. Missionary and his wife locked away in a hut on one occasion and a tribe had surrounded them and was going to attack them and kill them and suddenly the tribe dispersed. Later on they had led the tribal chief to faith in Christ and, and, and said, Sir, we want to ask you about an event uh, one night. And, and they said, Can you tell us what happened? And he said, There was no way we were going to attack you with with all of that army that you had with you. And he said, they said to that tribal chief, there was no one there but us, just the two of us. He said, oh, no, 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 no. There was an army of men around your hut that night. Angels, unawares. Hebrews chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Hebrews closed out by talking about angels and how... God has angels who are servants to the body of Christ. You might entertain an angel unawares. Now folks, look at verse 2 again. Because I want to say another word about it. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. I want to mention a way that this verse is being used today. And I think it's being used incorrectly. Okay, This verse and other verses like it in the Old and New Testament, I think, are being hijacked and used incorrectly to speak of immigration. Now let me say when it comes to legal immigration, where individuals and families are properly checked out and they come in legally, folks... The church ought to be tickled to death about that. And we ought to welcome these folks. We need to remember that all of us, if you traced our families back far enough, folks, we're all children of immigrants. 
Legal immigration shouldn't threaten us. We ought to celebrate it. These are folks we can share the gospel with. I'm not going to get into all the deep weeds on, on immigration. That's above my pay grade. There's some difficult issues there. I don't think these, when it comes to illegal immigration and the way some are proposing it's done today and they're using verses like this, these verses like this can't be used to support something like that. And folks, if we were to do it illegally, we would descend into chaos on, on this matter. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. But again, when it's done legally, strangers that are coming to us from around the world, we ought to welcome folks and share the love of Jesus with them. Well, a third thing he points out here. Our relationship to those in bondage or those who are suffering. Look at verse 3. He says, remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them and those who were mistreated since you also are in the body. When he mentions here those in prison, now most would agree that these persons have ended up in prison because of their preaching of the gospel. That's who he's talking about here. Now, it's certainly true that the church today can have a great impact going into jails and prisons. We used to have people in the church do that on Sunday nights. Men and women both who would go into the prisons. We applaud that. If you feel led to do that, wonderful ministry. But again, what he's pointing out here is those who are in prison because they are Christians. Who would be the best example you know of that? The Apostle Paul. Exactly. Listen to Paul's word. In 2 Timothy, Paul is in prison. And this time he knows he's not going to be delivered. This time he knows he's going to be put to death. And indeed, he, he was put to death by Emperor Nero. But listen to what he says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get my Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Is that not sad or what? Here's Paul in prison. And everybody who names the name of Christ with the exception of Luke has deserted him. Paul. The greatest theologian and missionary the church has ever seen. God used him to write the majority of our New Testament. Here he is in prison and he's alone. And he says, Timothy, come to me quickly. Bring the parchments, the manuscripts, the scrolls, Bible, and notepads to write on. Bring a cloak 
It's getting cold. Winter's approaching. And get here as fast as you can. Folks, again, I I read that and I think how sad. But how greatly God can use people in that circumstance. I think of John Bunyan, that Puritan preacher who was thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, was in prison for 12 years, and while he was in prison for 12 years, what did he write? Pilgrim's Progress. Other than the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress has been read in the English language more than any other book. By the way, online through pastors like Dr. Andy Davis... First Baptist Durham, Dr. Derek Thomas, First Presbyterian of Columbia, South Carolina. Wonderful studies for small groups based on Pilgrim's Progress. God used him greatly. I think of the North Carolina pastor who was recently released from prison in Turkey. Others like him. He's saying here to the church community at that time, in a world at that time where Christian pastors and missionaries could be put into prison, make sure that as these people who represent the gospel end up in prison, you better make sure you as the body of Christ go and minister to them and don't leave them alone. Now folks, today the church ought to visit The motive might be different, the circumstance, but we still visit those. Minister to them. After all, you have a captive audience, right? And you know what? Some are in the prison. Prisons of different sorts through physical limitations. Hospital beds, nursing homes. I've had workers in nursing homes tell me before about certain residents who almost never have anybody ever come to see them. Sad. Some of you visit nursing homes, hospitals. We encourage that. Dr. Willis, several years ago, trained some of the men to go and and visit. A couple of the men, I think of Jerry Zook, I think of Dave Phillips, men in our congregation do that. He, He can train more, I can. There's certain things you do have to be mindful of when you go into these institutions. There are some limitations, some requirements. But as the body of Christ, we need to be reaching out to people like that. Those who are in bondage. Those who are suffering. Those who are alone. Folks, let's don't forget, as a church, let's don't forget about people like that. Fourthly, he talks about our relationship to marriage. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now in many of the Roman and Greek cities of the ancient world, uh, immorality was as bad as it is today. In fact, maybe worse. In some of these cities like Corinth, for example, or Ephesus, they would have a temple to a false deity. 
And in that temple to a false deity, it was common that they would have temple prostitutes. And they had this weird way of thinking that if you had intimate relations with a temple prostitute, somehow or another, it brought you into union with that false deity. Nonsense like that went on. It was almost a given that men, men in the ancient world would not only have a wife, but they would have a mistress. That was pretty much standard fare. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, just like the Apostle Paul in his letter said, that, that is behavior that is entirely inappropriate for believers once somebody comes to faith in Christ. In fact, Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 said that sexual immorality is not even to be named a single time among you. He says, as is fitting among saints. Purity in one's sex life was one of the greatest differences between the early church and the pagan world. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7 that intimacy only belongs in marriage between a husband and a wife. And anything outside of that is sin. Whether it's premarital or extramarital, it's sin. We're to be pure. The writer of Hebrews here points out that God will judge the immoral person. You know, the world today celebrates immorality. Celebrates it. But the Bible says God will judge it. Finally today, the writer of Hebrews talks about our relationship to money. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. We've all got to have money to pay our bills and live responsibly in the world. But the Bible says we're to keep our lives free from the love of money. And the answer to that is that we are to be content. We're to be content with what we have. You know, everybody today seems to want what somebody else has got. People want somebody else's job. They want somebody else's house. They want somebody else's car. They want somebody else's spouse. Some people even want somebody else's kids. I wish I had their kids, not my kids. everybody's wanting stuff that everybody else has. And then you know what? Sometimes they get it, and guess what? They're not content with that either. Because guess what? You're not going to be content by the things of the world. He points out here that the real answer for contentment is in the Lord. And he says, He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is Jesus enough for you? If Jesus is not enough for you, maybe you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Maybe that's the problem. 
Somebody once said, I've never seen a hearse being towed. Uh, I've never seen a U-Haul being towed behind a hearse. It goes without saying you can't take it with you. You know what, folks? The Bible teaches us to be rich toward God. Paul in 1 Timothy 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But Listen to this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils it's like Paul is saying to Timothy to warn his congregation when it comes to money to say to them danger, danger, danger you better be careful about your relationship with money I think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus he had a big emptiness in his life he came to Jesus Jesus told him something. Jesus didn't tell every wealthy person. Jesus knew this guy was making a a God out of his money. So he told the rich young ruler, go and sell everything you have. Give to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible says the rich young ruler turned away from Jesus sad because he was very rich. Do you see the irony in that story? Here's a guy who had wealth. And yet he had a hole in his heart. It hadn't met that need. And so when Jesus tells him to get rid of that and come and follow him, he won't do it. And he turns back to his wealth, even though his wealth had left the hole and had never satisfied him. He turned right back to that which had never brought contentment in his life. Doesn't make any sense at all. But see, that's how deceptive riches can be. Listen to me. If you are not content with what you have, you will never never be satisfied by what the world can give you. What the world can give you will never satisfy you. Now in closing, let's go back to where we started today. I quoted for you Ephesians 4.1. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. How's your Christian walk? Does your Christian belief system find application in your relationships? If not, something is wrong. Think back to that illustration I gave of Bertrand Russell. It wasn't Christ who prevented him from coming to Christ. It was the inconsistency he saw in professing believers' lives. Do you love the brethren? Do you love the brethren? If you don't, you abide in darkness. That's not my words. That's the Bible's words in 1 John. Where John says, if you do not love the brethren, you abide in death. Christians, 
Go on loving the brethren. Persevere in it. Continue in it. Don't let difficult circumstances diminish it. Ask God for staying power when it comes to love. The recipient of your love doesn't have to be worthy of your love. You and I were not worthy of Christ's love. How about your relationship to strangers and those in need? Do you love them? Do you minister to those who are in need? Maybe you need to take to heart some of those ways I gave you that you can reach out to people in nursing homes, hospitals, jails. How about purity? Are you pure? Is there sexual sin in your life? Is there immorality in your life that you need to repent of? Are you content? Is Jesus enough for you? Maybe you need to come to him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words in chapter 13. Powerful words about the gospel being applied in everyday relationships. Give us strength, the strength beyond anything we possess on our own. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to help us to do what your word commands. I pray that we would love one another, that we would be hospitable to strangers, that we would minister to those in need, that we would be pure, and that we would be content. Lord, help us to examine our lives, and if there's any way in which we have been a hindrance to somebody coming to Christ, that you would help us to deal with that. And I pray for those this morning who need to come to Christ. Lord, help them to realize that we will celebrate that decision with them. They don't need to be worried about publicly professing you. We will rejoice with them. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.